Hey, business owners, ever wondered what happens when you take a payment? Well, there's a whole world of transactions powered by Elevon. Whether it's through currency converting, security asserting, business supporting, real-time reporting, e-com providing, or expert advising, <laughs> Elevon supports all payments for your business. To find out more, visit elevon.ie. Elevon, your world of payments. Elevon Financial Services, DAC trading as Elevon Merchant Services, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. The Big Tech Show brought to you by Elevon. Elevon makes payment taking simple, freeing you up to focus on your business. You take on the world, they'll take care of the payments. See elevon.ie for more. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Wechter, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. Now, the Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence, Simon Coveney, said that his phone was hacked and that he deletes text messages because of that phone hack. Now, the rest of the country might see this as a political issue concerning a job for former Minister Catherine Zappone. But I'd like today to explore the serious issues raised by Minister Coveney around his phone being hacked and also that he regularly deletes text messages from his phone. Now, before I go to our guests today, let me say that neither of Minister Coveney's departments, Foreign Affairs and Defence, he's the line minister in both, will answer questions about this. But what we know from Mr Coveney's own remarks at successive Oireachtas committees is that A, his phone's hack was a phishing attack, a phishing attempt that resulted in others on his contact list being contacted. And also that the Data Protection Commission was not informed of the breach. Mr. Coveney said that it was the Gardaí that were contacted. They have declined to comment on that. The Data Protection Commissioner has said that uh, that their office was not uh, informed about this. The two guests today are experts in their field. Gavin Sheridan is the CEO of VisLegal and co-founder of uh, Right to Know. Uh, .ie, and Dara O'Brien is the CEO of Castlebridge. Gavin, can I go to you first? Simon Coveney says he deletes texts unless he thinks they might be needed for freedom of information. Um, what are the FOI rules that ministers generally must observe? So I suppose there's a couple of issues around this. Is uh, Records is, so the FOI, FOI legislation, it's worth just talking a little bit about FOI legislation first, I guess. So the FOI Act first came in, in in the late 1990s. Ireland is one of the earliest countries in the world, actually, to have an FOI law. And FOI law allows citizens to ask for information, which is records, i.e. actual records from uh, public authorities. So in, in, in the case of uh, FOI, what usually happens is a journalist or a citizen will file an FOI request asking for certain information or records, and the, the public body will then have to respond within a certain time period and then hand over the records subject to certain exemptions. What the issue here is, is that uh, there's no kind of broad, except for maybe the National Archives Act, there's no formal kind of legislative footing for data retention or the retention of records at a kind of a legislative level the way there probably should be. But there's multiple overlapping layers of legislation to do with different pieces of legislation about what should or shouldn't be retained, but not necessarily for what purpose. So it's there's actually a kind of a civil service code, and this kind of came up a couple of years ago where journalists were seeking out uh, um, WhatsApp conversations or email correspondence between officials. And essentially, the information commissioner kind of said, well, there kind of should be some kind of standard here where records are retained um, in the event that an FY might be filed, partly because it's good practice, 
records management is a key part of how any bureaucracy functions. So it seems logical that any public authority should not be going out just deleting records just in case someone FOIs them. That they, that we need a, actually a historical record of how decisions are made, why decisions are made, who made the decision, why certain money has been spent on certain things and not something else. All of those things are usually written down either in the minutes of a meeting, in email correspondent, or in modern day communications, in a text message conversation that might be on iMessage, it might be on WhatsApp, it might be on Signal, it might be on something. But in general, the guidance says that if a minister is communicating, even on their personal device, the records that there that are in that device, and are, if they're about government business, should be FOIable in principle, and that those records should not be deleted on some kind of ad hoc basis. Now. Just just to be clear here, you've introduced two ideas there. One is that there isn't any specific rules around retention. But on the other hand, this competing idea that if information communications records are likely maybe to be FOIable, that they need to be retained. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's especially when you think about it from a kind of a good governance standpoint and how you run a bureaucracy or how you run the civil service, for example, like ministers are at the top of the line when it comes to how the government functions, who makes decisions, the power is vested in in the minister and in the cabinet about how the government actually runs. So the the way the FOI Act was designed, and it was amended as well, reintroduced again in 2014, is when I file the FOI request, there should, in theory, be a freeze on on the deletion or otherwise of the records that I'm seeking. But only at and that point? Only, only at the point that, you, that point you file on, it? I, yeah, and, and Simon Coveney kind of made this point in an interview, I think, yesterday, where he was saying, look, I, I, I was deleting stuff, but it wasn't anything to do with government business. The problem with that statement, I think, is it's not up to him to decide what is or is not government business because he's not independent. He has a conflict in deciding what there is or is not government business. He might choose to say something isn't government business that, in fact, is if another person were to look at it. So it's not really up to the minister to decide that. Well, if it is not up to the minister. But it is up to somebody who's answering the FOI request that might be filed. But if that person who's answering the FOI request um, makes the request of the minister's department and that information is not there because it has been deleted because the line minister has his or her own policy of deleting text messages for their own reasons, whatever they may be, that's a problem. I mean, how do we get around that? It is a problem, and in technically, you could argue it's a breach of, of the code that was introduced a couple of years ago around, and that being a punishable, a punishable, not not criminal offence, but a punishable offence, i.e., a sanctionable offence by the public authority in terms of you have breached the civil service code, you shouldn't have done that. So we we're going to wrap you across the knuckles for for breaching the code. But yeah, there is an issue around what exactly is any government, let's say, line minister, line department of all the main departments. What should they keep for how long? What's the legislative basis for that? We have the National Archives Act since the mid-1980s about what you're supposed to keep overall because, you know, you, you're, you know every Christmas you see the 30-year rule records being released and you say, oh, that was the decision Charlie Hawhey made or whatever. That's all done under the National Archives Act. If Charlie Hawhey in the 1980s was deleting all those records because he felt, well, I don't think that's actually something that should be FOIable, not that FOI did exist at the time, but you can see where I'm going. A lot of stuff might have just been deleted or destroyed that we might actually rely on in the future to go, well, why were those decisions made? He made decisions and were they good decisions to make? Although it took a lot more in those days to actually physically destroy something. It wasn't in the privacy of your own car, just pushing a button on a phone. I remember working in the Sunday Business Post many, many years ago when a colleague of mine at the time, Frank Connolly, found a huge cache of documents in a dump 
belonging to a political party. And it, it just wasn't that easy. It was it was more difficult, and it usually involved more people in destroying uh, documents. But um, if so, where we are at the moment, if it is clear that a minister or a politician um, deletes texts off their own phone um, based on their own interpretation of what's uh, right and wrong, right now it seems you're saying that that could be a violation of a code, but right now, effectively, they can do that with impunity. As far as I can see, yes. Um, okay. And that, that's that's down to, I mean, there was talk that we would, you know, reform the FOI, or sorry, reform the National Archives Act to bring it into line with digital information being stored. Like, remember, this isn't just about phones. We have exchange servers inside government departments and financial management systems that store hundreds of thousands of emails, millions of emails that are stored across systems. And we saw this with the HSE hack as well. Vast databases that contain huge amounts of information. All of that is subject to the FOI Act. Now, Mm. the the question here is, is, well, what is the retention policy? Is the retention policy ad hoc? In other words, does each department decide, well, we're going to retain it for this length of time or that length of time? What's the standard? Is is it set on a legislative basis? And then you have, as, as, as Darren might talk about, then you have other legislative override, uh, interests around the GDPR, around uh, about the Criminal Justice Act. There's other legislative provisions around what should or somebody retain and for how long. Mm. The question is, why haven't we got a, an overall standard for how all public bodies in the state should behave with this? And also guidance for ministers and public officials about what they can and can't do and perhaps mm. punishment if they breach it. I'm going to go to Dara in a second, but one of the things that did occur to me during um, Minister Coveney's remarks about deleting his text were, was the absence of any technical questions of that in terms of backups, maybe iCloud, although iCloud often synchronizes with the device uh, it's uh, attached to, so the, the messages may not be there. You you bring a good point up there in terms of the servers. The idea of using Signal came into this. A colleague of mine in the Sunday Independent, Hugh O'Connell, had a story at the weekend saying that a third of the cabinet now use Signal, but as you know, um, to if you want to set signal uh, to delete messages automatically you actually have to do that it's not snapchat where the default setting is to d- to delete uh or to disappear messages um i'm presuming this is a stupid question a layman's question the foi applies equally to signal or telegram as it does to whatsapp not only does it apply to signal on whatsapp and so on it applies to the personal devices and personal email accounts of public officials, if they're conducting public business, business. on their, those personal accounts. So, like, and, and if you talk, and, and look, with the Signal question, I'm a huge fan of Signal. I think all ministers should be using Signal by default because it's the best of a bad bunch of applications from a security perspective. And if you have the Minister of Defence not using it, it'd probably be an issue. The, the issue is, what's the policy that's set by the department to the minister to say, by the way, don't use the disappearing messages feature Retain all of your records for X amount of months or years or whatever the case may be. Hand over those records when you leave office or on a on a on a quarterly basis. Hand over the records of your of your messages, which can be done in, in Signal. So when I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it from the point of view of you know both security and FOI from the security perspective. Where are uh, Hugh Coveney's WhatsApp backups going? If they're going Simon, into account, Simon Coveney, yeah. yeah, Simon Coveney, or sorry, Simon Coveney, where are Simon Coveney's backups going? Uh, his iMessage backups are clearly going into iCloud because I think you actually have to back up to iCloud in order to use iMessage. And those are accessible to US security services because Apple has the keys and they can be a warrant and they can be a whole process. And obviously, Simon Coveney is not a US citizen, so he has basically no protection at all. So 
if you if you if you really break it down, it's everything that's a record that involves government business on any device, on any platform, in any way, shape, or form. All records are subject to the FOI Act, subject to obviously the exemptions that exist in the Act, such as commercial sensitivity, personal information, international relations, and so on. But again, those processes around how those exemptions apply are not up to the minister after the FOI is done. It's up to the FOI officer in the first instance, and perhaps then the information commissioner or the courts in later instances, if it gets to that point, about when it, what can and can't be released. Yeah, yeah. But as you have alluded to, and it, it seems abundantly clear to me, that assessment of whether something uh, is to be retained for FOI purposes clearly seems to be an ad hoc one and clearly there seems to be an acceptance among senior political circles that they themselves will decide whether a text message uh, should be retained and they will apply their own logic and their own radar um, to that decision-making process. Simon Coveney said as much during the week. He said that uh, if he thinks that something might be suitable for FOI, he um, will retain it. Even though, by the way, he said that the reason he deletes text messages is because he's not sure that his phone is safe, but he will keep sensitive ministerial business between ministers on his phone, on his unsafe phone, using his own words, his unsafe phone, um, because that might be FOIable. However, that is a contradiction that... He is, he is inherently conflicted. You, you can't have the person deciding about what's FOIable being the person who's deleting messages in advance of an FOI. It's just, it's it's conflicted. And that would apply not just to minister, to any public official in any public authority. You really should not have, it's not good practice to say that the person who is making a decision about what to delete or not to delete in advance of a potential FOI is the person who might be subject to the FOI. And does it dismay you at all? And Dara, I am going to come to you in one second. Does yeah. it dismay you at all that there is no apparent action or enforcement or advancement on, uh, you know, on taking action on this because this has been left the way it is and that's the way it is? Hugely. And, you know, when the FOI Act was being reformed in 2014, uh, there was a lot of attempts to water it down through increasing the fees for, for requesting the information in the first place that we fought against uh, uh, um, at the story.ie. But there's also suggestions that we made when the reform has been brought in. One of the suggestions we made was to do retention of records. The second thing we said was stronger penalties for public authorities who abuse or otherwise don't uh, fully adhere to the FOI Act, true financial penalties. And the response from the department when we made those suggestions was, well, the information commissioner never asked for those powers, even though those powers exist in other jurisdictions. In Serbia, the information commissioner has powers to, to financially penalize uh, local public bodies who are not complying with the legislation correctly. Um, and those fines can be punitive in the sense that, well, we're just going to fine you 50,000 euros because you just didn't play ball with the F way the FOI Act is supposed to work. Now, I think those kind of penalties are a, a stick. There should be carrots as well. The carrots are better, better training for officials, better cultures with transparency, more leadership from secretary generals around transparency and being a good thing to cut down on maladministration or poor decision-making or poor spending of public money. So all of these things kind of go hand in hand. And, and, you know, at the same time, we as a country need to understand from a historical perspective why decisions were made retrospectively is good because maybe we learn from our mistakes. Maybe we learn mm. lessons from things we shouldn't have done that we did based on the historical record. Yeah, but this Dara stuff should not be, we should, we should not be waiting 
decades to find out why it should be that this stuff comes out relatively soon afterwards as well. Yeah, D- Dara, I'm not sure what we're all waiting for when uh, one of the most senior ministers comes out and essentially shares with us his process of deleting texts and the basis on which he do- he does so. I'm, and the three of us are talking about it. I'm not sure what the Information Commission or anyone else is is waiting for, but that is not our business, I suppose, except to comment no. on it. Just in terms of picking up some of the points Gavin was making there, one of the key challenges we have is that when civil service administration processes were set up um, originally, paper-based memos, everything was on paper. Then we moved into the introduction of computers and email, and there was some structures around filing of things in that context. But the technology for how we can communicate and, and, and how we can share information has evolved in leaps and bounds in the last decade. The one, the convenience. And speed is one aspect, but with the convenience and speed, we haven't we haven't had the uh, commensurate investment in planning, structures, and governance. And the one thing that happens every so often, every time there's an election, we see a change of government departments and a movement. But, but why would they, Dara? That's hassle. That's that's time and it's hassle. And if you can delete texts on your own basis and your own judgment, why would that's a lot more convenient, isn't it? It's it's a lot more convenient for the the individual who's creating the record, but from the point of view of managing the state and managing the, the, the national record and the corporate memory of the, of, of the government and of the state, having good planning and proper governance of critical information and the, the collective corporate memory and managing the knowledge and retaining the knowledge of the state about how and why things were done, even if no one FOIs it, being able to find that if you need to. And the, the National Archives during the summer had a, a, a seminar on digital records and the national record. But doesn't that all suppose that there is a basic groundswell of support for the idea of that sort of structured information, freedom of information? And if I were to ask you, and I do, I genuinely, this is, I do not mean this cynically, this is not a cynical question. If I were to ask you, in your opinion, whether the majority of uh, senior politicians and political parties like or dislike the idea of a Freedom of Information Act when in government, particularly the parties that are often in government, what, how, what would you say they would lean toward? Okay, I'm going to flip that question slightly. In the absence of freedom of information legislation, it is still good practice and good governance to have proper policies and controls for the creation and management of records, even if someone like Gavin isn't knocking on your door looking for them. Someone in your organization might be looking for them. In 20 years' time, a historian might be looking for them, or there might be, dare I say, an inquiry into something where it might be useful to know exactly what happened and what was decided to exonerate or not, as the case. I I think you're right, but I just wonder whether the the priorities that you're um, referring to there are shared by a significant number of you know, politicians in this country for different reasons. Let me ask you just about something else. Um, and it's about this idea uh, about not reporting this device, a device that has been um, infiltrated by a phishing attack, which has exposed the phone numbers and contacts of others on that phone. This is how Minister Coveney described the hack uh, on his phone. They were coy at first in in whether or not they were, they would uh, agree that this was the hack. But Minister Coveney has subsequently said a few times. Now, can I ask you, because I've been onto the Data Protection Commissioner a few times about this, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. If your company or work phone device has been phished in this way, do you need, in general, to report that uh, to, as a breach to the Data Protection Commission? If 
any device that you are using for your work purposes, whether it's a personal device or a company-issued device, is subject to a security breach that puts at risk personal data of individuals. If there is a risk to the individuals, that is a notifiable incident to the Data Protection Commission. That is unambiguous. That's exactly what Twitter were fined over uh, just before Christmas, a delay in reporting a data security breach. That's what Tusla have been fined over, delays in reporting data security breaches. Now, to, to, to be clear, um, just so there's no ambiguity uh, at all here, the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, in questions that I've and many others have put to them, have said, and Minister Coveney has subsequently said that, that they came to an assessment that this was a hack in the realms of a cyber attack. We can't interrogate that assessment because um, they won't answer any more questions about it. So we, we can't say that they're wrong. We just can't interrogate it um, anymore. However, is it not true to say that just because something is a cyber attack or a hack, it may also be a personal data breach that may also attract a requirement to, to notify the Data Protection Commissioner? The definition, first of all, to deal with the, the statement from the department, a, a hack in the realm of a cyber attack, that's word salad. That means nothing. Well, that's what they say. And they were the only less interrogated. So we, we can't, we, but, but, we can't but, 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 say that that's say wrong. All we can do is go on the information they have given us and look at what the law says. Well, what the law says is that where there is a breach of security leading to unauthorized access to or disclosure of personal data, and where there is a risk to the fundamental rights and freedom of the data subjects as a result of that, it must be notified to the Data Protection Commission within 72 hours. Notification to the affected data subjects is based on whether there is a high risk to their rights and freedoms. So contact list, information on the phone, um, depending on what that is, depending on the specifics, if there is a, if there is a memo stored on the phone that relates to uh, an individual who might be subject to... Well, well let's, let's look at the actual incident here. A, a, a phone that was compromised to the extent that others from that phone, and this is these are Minister Coveney's own words, as a result of this hack, others, uh, foreign minister counterparts, were contacted as a result of this hack. So that is surely personal data being that compromised. That is personal data, and bluntly dealing with clients on a regular basis where we have issues like this, phishing attacks like that are reported to the DPC. Hmm. Who in a government department, like any other organization, might be responsible for assessing or deciding whether a breach should be uh, notified to the DPC? This is where it, this is where it gets interesting. Um, because the data protection officer has to evaluate and assess that. The data protection officer's role is to ensure compliance with the Data Protection Acts and, and with GDPR. However, the actual act of notifying um, could be by the organization itself. The data protection officer makes a recommendation. The data protection officer might take the lead in filling out the breach notification, but they may be, there may be a decision taken that that won't be done. And that is that puts a data protection officer in a an interesting position because it is not one of the tasks of the data protection officer to notify the data protection commission of issues. Their job is oversight and uh, to advise, advice and yeah. training, and generally ensuring that there is good governance in the organisation. However, under the Protective Disclosures Act, a data protection officer could make 
a disclosure to the Data Protection Commission directly if they feel that the organization they are working within is not complying with legislation. I've actually mm. just been looking at this for a blog post series we're going to be putting out on Casper's website in the next few days, completely unrelated to this topic. It's just by coincidence we have, I was looking at it. Um, the, the issue then is the, the recommendation would be coming from the data, the data protection officer in the department who is independent and should be independent from influence. People shouldn't be, they shouldn't be able to be instructed by the minister or a senior civil servant to not do their job. And their job is to say, this should be notified. And there's no suggestion here that that, that has happened um, at all. Now, the Data Protection Commissioner um, says that it is not pursuing this. Sometimes the DPC here will get in contact with an organisation if, for example, it sees reports of something that has happened and it's something of interest. It will just write to an organisation or contact them and say, look, um, has this happened? Could you just you know, come back to us and give us even a, a brief outline? The DPC says right now that they're not going to do that. And my understanding as to why they're not going to do that is that they are taking the department's um, word that it has made a genuine bona fide assessment that they did not need to, to file a breach notice to the DPC, that they dealt with it in, uh, in, in the correct way. So if the DPC is not going to contact the department about a hacked phone that compromised the uh, personal details of others, and if, for example, the there's going to be no action taken on the minister deleting texts as and when he wants to, I do have to ask both of you the question, what message does it send to politicians and others looking at the enforcement or the uh, adherence to data protection law and also to FOI that um, neither of these bodies, they may uh, uh, get involved at a future point, but at this point, with the knowledge that is publicly out there that we've discussed in detail on this podcast, neither of them is going to take action. And I do wonder what message that sends to uh, to, to politicians and, and, and everybody else about how serious we are with de- dealing with A, data privacy and B, FOI. Gavin, do you want to go first? Yeah, I, I suppose there's there's a couple of there's a couple of really fundamental questions here. So, if a meeting happens among public officials at a senior level in a government department and there's no minutes taken, did the meeting even happen? So, like it's it's hard for somebody who's on the outside looking in to go, well, what decisions were made at that meeting? Uh, who mm. decided? Uh, what was the consensus? What was somebody against the position and somebody was in favour of it? How was the decision arrived at? If there's no minutes. Who's to say, right? And there might be emails before and after the meeting. But then again, you could imagine that there might be an interest now to say, well, if there's no legislative provision that says, as such, we can't not delete stuff, we could just keep a data retention policy of six months. And after six months, everything goes down the memory hole. Mm. And you're like, well, we, then we'll never really know what 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 went on or why, because I can't FOI it, because maybe I only find out about the fact that the meeting happened seven months later. And I can't FOI because, oh, well, well we, we've deleted that already. So there's a there's a fundamental tension between how policies and and also I suppose there's a, a tension between what are the vested interests of the people who are involved in the whole process? Is there a vested interest in secrecy? Absolutely, there's a culture of secrecy in a, a wide range of public authorities. Certainly, it's something I've dealt with personally for a very long time. Is there a, a vested interest in not letting the public know why certain decisions were made? Absolutely, that happens all the time. 
the whole purpose of FOI legislation is to bring light to those decision-making processes to understand why, why sometimes huge amounts of taxpayers' money are being spent on something and whether we got value for money, for example. If those records are not being retained correctly or in a complete way and we, we can't then access them, it poses a fundamental dilemma for democracy. It's, well, why were the decisions made? How are we supposed to know? If, if it's all gone down the memory hole, who cares? Like it, it, it actually what it can do is engender a culture of not only secrecy but potentially bad behavior. Like you can imagine, if you're if you're engendering a culture of secrecy, that can lead to dangerous consequences that we've seen in the past in this country, well, in my lifetime, where all sorts of bad stuff can happen. And I won't go into the detail. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. All sorts of bad stuff when a culture of secrecy pervades any public body, you can have all sorts of decisions being made for reasons that we don't understand benefit individuals or benefit companies or benefit people who we don't know why they benefited but they did and the whole reason FOI was brought in was to try and address that think about the time in Ireland in the late 90s when it was brought in it was just after the beef tribunal there was a whole other bunch of stuff going on and FOI was brought in to say the citizen has a right to request records but also there's there's other provisions that say that well also public bodies should be more transparent in general that they should release records release minutes of meetings, release uh, public spending information, all this kind of stuff should be routine. FY maybe should be the last kind of the last chance saloon in the sense that when you're asking for something in FY, it might be contentious. All the non-contentious stuff really should be released. But I think really we're facing this tension here between in whose interests are public officials or ministers acting? Are they acting in their own interests or are they acting in the public interest? And who gets to decide? I think the public gets to decide true transparency mechanisms. That's the way I would approach it. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, in, terms the, in terms of the data protection question, uh, Adrian, um, a lot will depend really on what was the basis that the department made that decision not to notify the data protection commission. Yes. From the outside in, I'm looking at going from my experience, from my involvement with clients that have had similar issues. We have a simple policy of notify it to the DPC um, to make sure that it's recorded and that any knock-on implications are being managed and a proper investigation and proper handling of the case occurs. If the department made the determination and communicated their determination to the DPC and the DPC is on the view that that determination is valid, fine. I'm not going to argue with the DPC on that one. But if the DPC is taking on blind trust that a controller looked at an issue and said, that's fine, nothing to see here, that worries me. Mm. Because given the individual, given the responsibility in the hands of a minister, and given the, um, okay, it was relatively trivial data potentially, if it was a straightforward phishing attack, but if the phone was cloned, if it was more invasive security attack, uh, which could happen in the future, um, those issues become a concern from a, a, yeah. a good governance perspective. The reason you notify the Data Protection Commission is so that you have the lessons learned and that there's some independent scrutiny on the actions you took from the regulator to make sure yeah. that it's done in the right way. Now, to be totally fair to the Data Protection Commissioner, um, I can see their point of view. If they were to argue that, look, this is not us like letting anybody off or, or not investigating something, it's just that there are thousands of organizations and companies out there. We hear anecdotally about stuff that happens all the time. We literally can't investigate every issue. Helen Dixon has spoken about this before. She's covered it in her, her annual reports. And maybe if it gets to a certain point where there is a certain amount of importance attached to this particular issue, 
aside from the political stuff that's going on around Catherine's bone, because in my opinion, that is a different issue to what we're talking about on this podcast today. Mm-hmm. Um, if it, there was enough public concern about what we're talking about today, maybe they would take it upon themselves um, to, to ask those questions. But I actually flip that around a little bit, Adrian, in terms of talking about the generality of data protection compliance. The tone from the top is essential in organizations around data protection or FOI. If the most senior leader in the organization is saying, this is a thing that doesn't apply to me, or this is a thing that is not of, a, of an immediate concern to me, that sends a message down the organization that this is not a priority. Well, again, just to be clear, like we're none of us are suggesting that that's what Minister Simon Coveney I, I, is, I'm, is I'm saying. Not, yeah. I'm, not suge- I'm, I'm not suggesting that in the specific case, I'm saying in general, yep. the general principle in governance is the tone from the top is essential and research on Governance and compliance uh, programs over the years have shown consistently that the deeds and actions of the senior executives in an organization have a significant impact on what the lowest ranking member of staff does at a quarter to five on a bank holiday Friday as they're leaving the office and turning off the lights. Mm. Well, I I will say one thing uh, about just personal disappointment in terms of how officials deal with this issue. Um, The departments involved, Department of Foreign Affairs and Department of Defense, um, it's like trying to pull teeth, getting information from them. The Department of Defense, uh, a question that I put into them, didn't even think they had to address the question. They said this was purely a matter for the Department of Foreign Affairs. As far as I'm aware, Simon Coveney was Minister for Defense, full Minister for Defense, when his phone was compromised, as he said. The Department of Defense uh, say they don't even have to deal with the issue. They don't even have to, to, to acknowledge it, which to me is astonishing. Um, Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, their response to multiple questions about how they came to an assessment that uh, the breached phone exposing the details of others should not be sent as a breach notice to the Data Protection Commission are just falling behind a blanket statement saying they will not comment on the matter any further. Um, To me, that is quite worrying in terms of a democratic uh, accountability uh, exercise. Um, Minister uh, Coveney has said that uh, the tone that he adopted initially, which was the same tone the departments are adopting now, he described that as sloppy. He said yesterday um, in the uh, Oireachtas Committee, uh, he apologised that his initial approach to answering these questions was sloppy. And he said that he had caused unnecessary confusion. And I don't think that um, has has, uh, has finished. I, I genuinely think that there are as many questions still about this issue Nothing to do with uh, any job for Catherine Zabone, but in terms of the very serious issues of a, a, a cabinet minister's phone being compromised. If this was the UK or France or, you know, the US, this would be, a, it, I think this would be the story. But, but you can also make the additional point, Adrian. Uh, essentially, his phone is already compromised because mm. if, you, if, he has, if he's using WhatsApp, his backups are going into iCloud if he's using an iPhone or Google Drive if he's using Android. They're already unencrypted. They're already subject to... So GCHQ, the uh, uh, NSA, the Five Eyes, warrants can be issued. He's the Minister for Defence and Foreign Affairs while Ireland is on the Security Council and is right now President of the Security Council. And I'm, I'm inclined to say, well, 
what parts of his phone are not currently compromised is more of a question for me as far as surveillance is concerned. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a, a, a good general background point. Certainly, there is nobody, and Pro- Minister Coveney actually did make this point himself. He, look, I tend to think that any modern telecommunications now is not exactly 100% consur- uh, secure. That, that's a point well taken. But there are levels. And here we have an actual incident, an event, a compromised event on, on a phone. Now, he said he handed the phone into uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and they gave him a new one. I presume it was a, a new iPhone uh, 12 uh, Pro Max, because that's what he seems to be using um, at the moment. Um, and all of the backups and access or lack of access to data from those you know, cloud mechanisms will, will, will be there. But this was an actual compromised phone. And there's, there doesn't seem to even be any curiosity as to who was behind the attack. There's, that whole part of the discussion is completely absent. There, there, there is no interest, no concern. Who benefited from the attack? Was anything stolen? Were any of Minister uh, Coveney's colleagues' phones compromised? He, the Taunch de Vradker said that uh, Mr. Coveney uh, hadn't told him about it, and, and nor had his department. It's inconceivable that those two ministers are not in regular contact on certainly weekly, if not a daily basis. Like what other senior contacts in uh, the EU, in the UK, in the UN Security Council is Minister Coveney in contact with? And, and why isn't there even an interest or a curiosity among I think his just, department? Just to kind of step back slightly from the the big picture there that you're, you're painting. One of the key things we can, what I'd be looking at is WhatsApp. One of the key things you have with WhatsApp is the, the content of messages is encrypted, but the metadata about who you're messaging and who your network is and who's in your groups and how often you message people is available, not just to nefarious operatives or the intelligence agencies of world governments, but to the marketing department of WhatsApp. And that data indicates, not just from the point of view of the minister uh, or, or anyone using WhatsApp, I don't want to talk about a specific individual, um, user of WhatsApp, that, as, as I've spoken to you about this before on previous podcasts, that social graph, that network uh, mapping that can be done about who your contacts are and who you have close relationships with is incredibly valuable for marketers, but it would also be incredibly valuable for anyone who is looking for vulnerabilities in a person of interest, in a target that they were seeking to compromise. It might be someone that's publicly known or widely known has a link, but if they're messaging regularly and that data is known and there's a a breadcrumb trail there, that's useful intelligence, which WhatsApp sell for marketing purposes. You could also say that, you know, if you were to take your example, Adrian, which is the the quote-unquote bad actors, let's say, who want to compromise a device for a specific reason or for for whatever purpose, we have well-known private sector actors who are hired by governments in the world Who's t- who are tasked with hacking devices of senior officials in governments. That's correct. And they do it through a, they do it through a variety of mechanisms, including phishing attacks, including mm. attachments that then, uh, so quote-unquote, pawn the device or whatever you want to call it, and then the device is compromised completely. In other words, you get you can even replicate the, the phone calls, the, the, the whole, you can virtualize the device, you can do a whole sorts of things, who are bad actors who might try to use the information that they gather, resell it, use it as leverage, use it as all sorts of different things, then you also have what the other possibility, which which uh, sometimes we talk about, which is cell site simulators or stingrays that could just be put up around Leinster House and then just 
track all the devices around government buildings. So, you know, there are bad actors out there who have a vested interest in attacking devices of high-ranking ministers in any state. Now, you might think, well, why would they attack Ireland or a small country? But there are good reasons to do it if you want to seek leverage or you want to, to, to Gavin, uh, get it's compromising a, information. It's at least worth a discussion. It's at least exactly. worth somebody uh, in a depart- at a departmental level, at a political level, at an administrative level, in a data protection uh, level. It's at least somebody, you know, worth somebody asking that question. And the other alternative is this was simply a jumped up script kitty who got access to a list of numbers, texted them all randomly to see what would happen. If that was the assessment, though, the department came to, then why it somewhat softens the rationale for a minister repeating that his phone uh, was hacked in the realm of a cyber attack? Uh, But I, I I think that comes down to a couple of things, though, and it's cultural. I actually don't think a lot of uh, senior ministers know what a hack is or know even how to describe it or even know if they were hacked. I are think, we kind of letting them off the hook? Th- I, 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 I don't bit, disagree with bit. you, but are we kind of letting them off the hook there? All, they, all this fancy from, IT stuff, oh, that's, that's, I, I don't know about all that sort of stuff. And, and I think that's also a cultural problem within perhaps government departments who also don't have a lot of technical uh, or a sufficient technical knowledge as potentially they should, given the data that they are custodians of, right? Then so, what? Yeah. And, I think, and, and so, I think so we have a guy who's on the UN Security Council who may not know what a hack is. Who may have never been trained, who yeah. may have never actually got a class in it, who may have not, because there's no culture of information security inside the civil service the way potentially that there should be. Remember, after the HSE hack, we were still, we were kind of picking up the pieces after something that should have been prevented. It wasn't that we, you know, these are all things that are to a large degree but, but Gavin, preventable, but we the, just the don't story, have a doing it. The story of 2021, other than COVID, is Ireland being ransacked by IT security, by, by ransomware. Is it conceivable that after all we have been through this year, 100 million euro, people probably who have died because they couldn't get their, their, their health care, is it conceivable that we still have a political class who can claim that they don't know anything about this hacking stuff. Unfortunately, I think it is. And I tend to apply Hanlon's razor to this, which is never put down to malice that which can be described as stupidity or incompetence. So I tend to go, I tend to lean towards people just don't know what they're doing. Um, Mm. And and I don't mean that as a way, as a ghetto clause. I think that's ridiculous. I think the fact that we're in 2021 and we're having these conversations about, about minister devices or the HSE being hacked and saying somehow well, that's just the way the world isn't good enough, as I think Dara would agree. And hmm. this goes back to what I said earlier on about tone from the top. If a senior executive of any organization is going out to issue a statement saying they were hacked, they need to be clear what they mean by that. And that knowledge... They're not, they're not being clear. They don't want to talk anymore about it. And and it's, it's unclear why they don't want to talk anymore. But they're not saying that they can't talk anymore about it because to do so would compromise uh, sensitive information. They don't, so sometimes that's, that's something you'll often hear from uh, US uh, spokespeople or in the UK. They're not saying that here. No, and that's a challenge. And in the year we've had, where we've had, particularly after the HSE attack, for any senior exec, any government minister, any senior public official, or any private sector official, um, to, be, to be going out in front of the media talking about an issue without being really clear on what the terminology they're using is and being crystal clear what the issue and incident was and what was done to mitigate it is a complete failure of communications for a start. But also, I'd argue it's a failure of culture and governance because 
those co those controls and those frameworks are obviously not in place to the level they should be to make sure that a senior minister doesn't have to go back to an Oireachtas committee a second time to clarify. Mm, yeah, well, look, I just hope that uh, we're not going to have to have another Oireachtas committee in a couple of months' time based on the lack of detail and information uh, around uh, initial reports of a hacked phone that subsequently turned out to do something else. I hope that that won't turn out to be the case, but it's well worth us discussing. And I thank you both for your um, very expert and, and in-depth uh, um, views on this today. Um, so that's all we have time for uh, this week. I'd like to thank Gavin Sheridan, CEO of Legal and co-founder of RightToKnow.e, and Dara O'Brien, CEO of Castlebridge, um, for, I think, I hope, was an educational podcast on what this topic is about. For me, Adrian Wecker, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent, I'll talk to you same time next week. Bye-bye.